If you have your Bibles, would you open them and turn to the book of Exodus, the Old Testament book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking at the chapter um, 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. As you turn there, I want to remind us of where we've been. So last week, Dwayne kicked us off into a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. He didn't cover any of the commandments last week in particular, but he was setting the stage for what was going to happen when God was going to give his commandments to the nation of Israel. You see, the people of Israel had been delivered by God from the oppressive hand of the, of the, of the, Egypt, the Egyptians, and now they are in the desert, and they're essentially waiting for what's going to happen next. They're waiting for the next move. So here we are, about seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, and they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God will reveal his covenant to the people of Israel through Moses. So Duane pointed out that God was, was preparing them to be set apart as his holy people. He wants his people to be holy as he is holy. So God gives them his law. Duane explained that through the law of God, we see his heart and we see that he is compassionate, that he is just, he loves truth and beauty, and he cares about the goodness and well-being of his people. This week, we're going to go ahead and dive right into the first commandment. And we are going to be talking about how God speaks. God speaks. And God delivers. And God gives us a command to obey. So, let's dive right in. Here's Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 3. It says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Our God, this morning, we pray that you would grant us understanding of your word by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that because we've encountered you and heard from you in the words of Scripture, that we would leave here different than when we came. Lord, we pray we would leave this place with a better understanding of the good news of the gospel and be more willing to live for you in joyful obedience to your commands. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I love Jenga. Do you know the, you know the game, Jenga? The blocks that you stack? And you have to try to pull them out and without knocking the whole tower over, right? And um, my kids really, they get really annoyed with me because the whole time I want to yell, Jenga, Jenga, Jenga. They actually don't understand what's going on because I don't even think they've even seen the old commercials where that was the advertisement, right? Where everyone would gather around the table and chant, Jenga, Jenga, right? Well, again, I especially love the big block version of Jenga, you know the two by four version that you see at block parties and weddings and things like that. Have you guys played that before? So it's this massive tower, right? And and so it's not the little the little itty bitty Jenga where you pull the blocks out. It's like big, right? And so the reason I like it because there's a there's a new added level of danger to it. The stakes are much higher. In fact, when we play it or when we see people playing it, we always got to make sure that that there aren't any of the babies kind of circling around the table because they're interested, too, because there's always usually a lot of action around that. We got to make sure that they're not standing around there, because if someone pulls the wrong block and it falls, one of those kids are going to get hurt with a two by four hitting them in the head. We don't want that. 
So listen to this. If you have played Jenga before, if you're familiar with this, you know this, that your first move, you wouldn't even think of trying to remove the bottom right block or the bottom left block. You wouldn't think of that. And if you did, it'd be kind of foolish. Because what would happen is the entire tower would actually come crashing down, causing all sorts of danger, right? On your first move. And I would be upset with you because I wouldn't be able to keep chanting, Jenga, Jenga. The game would be over because the tower comes crashing down because you've disrupted the foundation on the very first move. There is a reason the first commandment is located as the first commandment in the order of the Ten Commandments. It's because it is foundational. It's a foundational commandment which all the other nine commandments are built upon. The first commandment is like those bottom foundational blocks in Jenga. If you try to remove it as a commandment, the other, com the other nine commandments will not be stable and will not be able to safely stand. That is why God says, as the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the Ten Commandments are thought to be divided into two tables. The first table, Commandments 1 through 4, concerns our love for God, our worship for God, our devotion to God. The second table concerns, the uh, Commandments 5 through 10, concerns our love for our neighbor. And so, Jesus affirms this division in Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees were trying to test him, they're trying to corner him. And so they ask him, Jesus, uh, tell us, what is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus nails it. He says this in Matthew chapter 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, the number one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is critical to understand as of first importance because it actually follows the creational order. Adam was created and lived in a loving, devoted relationship with God before he even had a neighbor. It was just God and Adam, right? until God decided later to make Eve. So, just so you hear me clearly, love God, first table of the law, and then loving your neighbor, the second table of the law, will follow. It follows that order, that importance. You might be listening to this commandment and, and listening to what I'm saying, you might be thinking, what a strange commandment. I can see how all the other commandments are good for me. I can see how they're good for my neighbor. I can see how they're, they're there to protect me. I can see all those things, but I don't see how this one is, in particularly, is particularly good for me or good for my neighbor. Now, if that is you, I want you to be comforted because guess what? You're in good company. Because as I was preparing this message this week, I was actually wondering the same thing. But I assure you, I'm still qualified to preach this message. I promise. Because, listen to this, even more comforting. The very nation of Israel, in fact, struggle with seeing the importance and the foundational importance of this commandment. They struggle with that. So let's take a look 
at our passage and I want us to look at it verse by verse in order to understand that God speaks, He addresses His people and then He reminds them of who He is and then He commands obedience to His law, to His commandments. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. It is important to note that God is speaking directly to the people of Israel at this point. At this point, they're gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and they audibly hear the voice of God. They hear the words coming out of his very mouth. He is not yet, God is not yet at this point speaking only to Moses and then having Moses relay the message back to the people. That's not happening yet. That actually happens later. You see, there was a tension with the people of Israel between a curiosity about the holiness of God and wanting to see him and, and hear his voice and hear from him themselves. Yet because of the fact that they were sinful, they realized in the midst of this very experience that they were having, they realize they are actually terrified of God simply because His holiness is far too much for them to bear. This is why in chapter 19, Dwayne covered this last week, Moses tell, God tells Moses to put limits in place in order to protect the people of Israel from God. So he puts these limits up so that they don't just run up the mountain toward God. And this is to protect them from God. Yet in chapter 20, if we skip ahead, which we will here, chapter 20, after God speaks the commandments, instead of desiring to move toward God and essentially break through those limits and run after Him and commune with Him one-on-one -on -one for themselves, instead, it says this happened. The people were afraid and they trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. What is going on here? First, they want to be by him. And then now they're terrified. Well, here's what's going on. They immediately see their unholiness in this very experience. They see their sinfulness in light of the holiness of God. They, like us, they have a tendency to downplay the severity of their own sin. But now, beholding God in all of His glory and His majesty, they know there is no way they can actually downplay their sin. They are fully exposed. They are no doubt aware, aware of what happened to Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. They know the consequence of sin. This moment that they are experiencing right now is making them totally aware and reminding them of the fall that's recorded in the book of Genesis, the fall of humanity into sin with Adam and Eve. This is what they become more aware of here. Hear these words. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of, all the, of, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What happened to Adam and Eve? They gave in to the temptation of Satan. And they disobeyed. And because of their disobedience, they brought death into the world. 
You see, what, what Satan was actually tempting Adam and Eve with it was the opportunity, the, the promise, air quotes, promise of them becoming gods themselves, becoming like and equal with their own creator. That was the temptation. The temptation was to break this very first commandment. That's what it was. And so they did. They gave into it. They ate the fruit. They picked from that tree, the tree that God said not to, and they brought death into the world. Israel knows this story. They know this account. They know the penalty for breaking God's command. And now they are fully aware of this penalty in the face of a holy God. So they were terrified. But they don't, they don't let their, I don't, I don't, I don't want you guys to, to, let, to let their reaction to what's going on here. I don't, 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 let, don't let your reaction um, throw you off because in order to, because I don't want you to start imagining that God is a big, ugly, mean, unloving God. No, 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 no. God is not unlovingly speaking to them. No, he is speaking truth directly to him audibly because he loves them. He reminds them of his love for them by reminding them of who he is and what he has already done for them. So in the fear of this moment that is stirred by simply hearing the voice of God, God reminds them of his love for them by reminding them of what he has already done. So God speaks. He addresses them. Now he's going to remind them of who he is. He says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is a covenant structure God is using in order to first remind us of, one, who he is. Because if the people of Israel are hearing his voice for the first time and trembling in fear, God knows they are going to need a formal introduction where he identifies himself in order to bring a level of peace and comfort and security in this seemingly chaotic and fearful moment. God is saying, you know the God who delivered you. You know him? That's me. God uses his formal name here. This, this is interesting. This is something to note here. He uses his formal uh, name here. The name that he revealed to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. It's the name Yahweh. But take, take a look here. When we see up here the, the, the word Lord, the name Lord, when we see that in all caps in, our, in most of our English translations, we use that. Um, what that's doing is that's actually signaling the the formal name of God. That's signaling that, that, the, that the word actually used there in the Hebrew is Yahweh, which the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh simply means I am. I exist. And so God is saying in that name, without your imagination, without your craftsmanship, Without you doing anything before, before you were, I exist. I am. Then he reminds them of his faithfulness. He has already been faithful to them. He has already been gracious to deliver them. And I want us to hear, just listen to this list. Listen to the, a few of the things God has done in order to ensure their deliverance from Egypt to where they are now. 
in order to deliver them from the oppressive hand of the, the Egyptians. So, so he sent 10 plagues. God sent 10 plagues to the land of Egypt, including the 10th plague that brought so much sorrow to Pharaoh and to Egypt. So much sorrow that they had no choice but to let the nation of Israel go. Then God provided a pillar of cloud by day and a, and a pillar of, of fire by night in order to lead them safely. After they were freed, Pharaoh changed his mind and went after Israel with chariots and his army. So God parted the Red Sea in order to have them pass safely. And then he closes the Red Sea and he closes it on Israel's adversaries, ensuring Israel's safety. After Israel without, was without water for three days, God made some really nasty, bitter, undrinkable water, sweet and drinkable. Simply by Moses just throwing a log into a nasty, infected pond. God provided manna that fell from heaven. He provided quail for them to eat when they were on the brink of starvation. Once, once, listen to this, this is the last one. When, when Israel was threatened by severe and deadly dehydration again, God made water flow from a rock in order to save them when there was no oasis in sight. This is what God intends to remind them of when he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's talking about these things. He reminds them of who he is and what he has done. Mind you, mind you, he, he, he did all of this, all of these things that led to their deliverance. He did all those things to save them before he ever even gave them any commandments whatsoever. So their deliverance is not dependent on their obedience to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, obey me and, and I will deliver you. Right? He's not saying, scratch my back and I'll take care of you. No, he flips it around and is saying, I already delivered you. You already are mine. So now obey because I love you and I want the best for you. Their obedience doesn't buy and it does not merit their freedom. Clearly, clearly, because during all those instances that I listed about what God did for them, the people of Israel the entire time were complaining over and over again. They became so annoying to their leader, Moses. He couldn't stand them. They would say things like, God brought us out here to the desert in order to let us die here. Really? Do you think God set them free in order to kill them in the desert? Give me a break. God is saying, all these things I have done for you. And, and they think that God is leading to kill them. God gives the first commandment after he reminds them of who he is. Listen, do you think he needs, the, the nation of Israel, do you think they need a reminder of who God is? The answer is a resounding yes. 
They constantly do. They constantly need this reminder. If you keep on reading the rest of the Old Testament, it is story after story of Israel needing to be reminded of who God is and his faithfulness and his goodness to them. And so he reminds them because he's about to give them as the first commandment something that is actually going to sound very foreign and very strange to them. And it will prove an impossible task for them to carry out on their own. So then he gives them the commandment. In verse 3, he says this, You shall have no other gods before me. How do you think Israel responded to that? I mean, really? This is the first commandment? Why wouldn't God just jump straight to the more, you know, practical stuff? Like, don't murder. That's more practical. The second table of the law. I could follow that. Do you think the nation of Israel was sitting back thinking, my goodness, God sounds narcissistic. Do you think they think now God is now sounding like he's kind of limiting to them? No other gods? Why are you limiting that, God? You see, the Egyptian culture in which the nation of Israel was living for 430 years, it was a polytheistic culture, meaning their religion included the, the worship and devotion to many gods, not just one. So to worship a plethora of gods was totally normal to the Egyptians. In fact, it was totally normal in all the Eastern ancient world. Most of the gods, according to their legends, were fairly friendly toward one another and always made room for other gods to join. And so that's why the Egyptians worship so many gods, too many, in fact, right now, to even begin to start naming some of them off as there were over 2,000 gods who the nation of Egypt worshiped. And there was always room for more. So do you think Israel picked up on some of that culture while they lived there? When I moved from California to Colorado, uh, it took about four years for me to adopt some of the Colorado cultural lifestyles. Things like hiking, living in the cold. I woke up this morning and I was about to buy the next plane tickets back home to California. Like, this is not my home. This is where Santa Claus lives. My goodness. Skiing, outdoor recreation, eating outside. I discovered that is something Coloradans get super excited about. That's a thing here, right? Let's eat outside. The sun's out. It's 30 degrees. Yeah, but the sun's out. What? It's cold. I'm cold. You don't eat outside when it's 30 degrees. That's something Coloradans get super excited about. I learned how to love the Broncos. I learned how to hate Californians, right? All those things. Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. You bet they picked up on Egyptian religious practices. You bet they did. So to them, this command sounds really strange and limiting. They really have a difficult time with this command because they were used to having choices. Worship one God for rain, one God for good crop, and, and one God for fertility. I can go on and on. 2,000 times over. Remember what they do after God has finished speaking the Ten Commandments directly to them. 
I'm going to jump ahead again. Take, take a look here. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So that is what happened. Moses is called up the mountain by God. He's invited on up. And it says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Moses leaves the people of Israel behind and hikes up the mountain where God now reveals more of the law to him so that the people don't have to endure the intensity of God's presence. We see in chapter 24 that Moses was with God away from the people for 40 days and 40 nights. Chapter 32 explains that people started to grow impatient. It says that they saw Moses was taking a long time to come back to them. Do you think they remembered what God has already said to them? You think they remember who God is, that he spoke to them audibly? You think they remember that God is like Yahweh was the one who delivered them? Do you think they remembered the first commandment? To worship him alone? The tragic answer is no. They didn't. Because after only 40 days and 40 nights, the Israelites came to Aaron and demanded of him. They said this, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. They're essentially saying, yeah, yeah. After these 40 days and 40 nights, this, this whole worship God alone thing, just, it just isn't working for us. These people heard the very voice of God audibly and trembled out of fear before him because in getting a glimpse of his glory, they realized he is real. He is the real deal. He is almighty, all powerful. He is a real being that cannot be manipulated or controlled by them because he is not a God made after their own craftsmanship. He is not a God made by their hands. He is not a false God of the ancient culture. You see, the other gods of the ancient culture were able to be controlled and manipulated. Dwayne pointed out last week the story of Moloch. He just used Moloch as, a, as an example. Moloch was a god in, in, um, in the ancient times that was believed that if you sacrifice your children to him, then he might do something special for you, like maybe make it rain or make your crop grow or help you with fertility, things like that. So kind of like a, I'll scratch your back, Moloch, if you scratch mine, right? I'll do this for you, you do this for me. You see, Israel is looking for gods they can craft and manipulate, just like Moloch. Something they can have control over. So Aaron, the brother of Moses, the priest, calls all the people together and tells them to give him, he tells them to give them their gold. And Aaron begins to fashion it with a graving tool in order to make it into a golden calf. Which in Egypt, a golden calf in Egypt was a symbol of fertility and strength. The calf, the golden calf, is no accident by Israel. They are hearkening back to their old ways. They have already, after 40 days and 40 nights, they have already broken the first fundamental, foundational commandment that God gave them. 
Exodus 32, they say this. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is shocking. By the way, they're not saying they have a problem with God. They're not saying they have a problem with Yahweh, the one who delivered them from Egypt, the one who says for them to worship him, the one who spoke to them, the one who reminds them of their deliverance by them, the one who gives them the commandment. They don't have a problem with Yahweh. They just don't want only Yahweh. They want Yahweh and this God who is in the form of a golden calf. They were fine with Yahweh. They just wanted to add other gods in there with them. That is why they are saying, these are your gods, plural. Not, not this golden calf is your God. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, these are your gods, throwing Yahweh in there with them. Take a look what happens next in verse 5. It says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, before the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Remember, in English translations, anytime you see the capital LORD in all caps, that is signaling the personal name of God, Yahweh. Aaron is now throwing this fashioned golden calf in with God, in with Yahweh, as though God can be equally manipulated and controlled by their celebrations and sacrifices. Well, he won't be controlled. He won't be manipulated. You see, God does not and will not put up with idolatry because he knows that it is not good for us. He knows that removing this first foundational commandment will cause the entire structure to fall because ultimately violating any of the other nine commandments is at its core a violation of the first commandment. The 16th century German reformer Martin Luther explained that the foundational problem in lawbreaking is always idolatry. In other words, we never break the other nine commandments without first breaking the first commandment. Martin Luther said this, <clears throat> you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And so anything we fear, anything we love or trust more than God, has become an idol to us. You see, when someone breaks the 10th commandment to not covet, they're, they're actually breaking the first commandment because they're not trusting in God to provide all that they need. When someone breaks the 8th commandment to not lie, they are elevating their own reputation above God and they're essentially making an idol of themselves. When, when someone breaks the seventh commandment to not steal, they are breaking the first commandment because they are failing to trust and love God more than they trust and love the very item they're willing to steal. The list goes on. Adultery, murder, they all find their foundation resting on this first commandment. That is why this first commandment is for our good. 
and truly reflects the heart of God for his people. It protects us at the foundation. If we obey this commandment, all the other commandments stay steady and strong. So we are protected from the trouble that comes from dishonoring our parents. We, we protect our neighbors from harm and we are protected from the consequences of harming our neighbor. That all sounds good, right? <laughs> Except we have the same problem as Israel. We don't struggle with the idea of God, the existence of God. That, that's not really what we struggle with. And actually, only about 4% of Americans identify themselves as atheists. That's actually a fairly low number. So our problem is not with, like, with acknowledging that there's a God. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't Israel's problem either. But we balk at the idea that there is only one God. This is because like Israel, we like choices. That's why when you go to the grocery store on the shelf, there's eight different choices for spaghetti noodle. Because we love choices. Having choices makes us feel like we are in control and we feel like we, we are able to manipulate things in our life to control it. And when we feel like our control over what or who we serve as a God is being threatened, we get angry. Sure, our idols today in our culture, aren't, they're not golden calves or other weird looking figures fashioned out of wood or stone. Our idols are much more mundane. Things like retirement funds, bank accounts, the political party we affiliate with, our children's sports, our smartphones that are sitting in our pockets or on our laps as we peruse Facebook during the sermon. Right? Look, Nobody in this room would be getting up and running to the store if I told them, hey, today's the new release of the new version of the golden calf. I'm not clear in the room with that information. But the iPhone, you guys might actually all start running to the Apple store if I said, today's the new release of the new Apple phone. I could clear room for that. The way we bow to these idols is with our money with our credit cards, as we are willing to go into debt for these things. We sacrifice our time. We orient our schedules and dedicate our imaginations for these things. We, like Israel, we do not keep this commandment, and therefore we deserve death. We deserve the penalty of death. However, God gives us a solution. You see, no idol, no false god we worship in place of God, in place of Yahweh. And, 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 and no idol or no false god that, wor that Israel worshipped in place of Yahweh was ever willing to come down off of their throne for themselves to provide deliverance for their worshipers. That's not a thing. No. They just kept demanding sacrifice after sacrifice, none of which ever pointed to an end that resulted in final deliverance. That is actually what makes Christianity so unique. All the other false gods in history say, keep striving, keep scratching my back, 
keep offering food and sacrifice to me in order to, to appease me. God knew that because of our sinfulness, we would never be able to appease him. That is why he gives the Ten Commandments when he does. He gives them after, after he has already delivered Israel. In order to demonstrate that he is gracious and he loves them and there is nothing he can do to change that. There's nothing we can do to change that. And church, this applies to us. We are not delivered from sin by keeping God's commandments. You cannot appease God by thinking that you simply are just being obedient. It doesn't work that way. Our obedience, just like Israel, is puny. I know that myself personally. I know that I haven't and indeed cannot faithfully keep God's commandments. The penalty of sin is death. And not even our own death, not even the sacrifice of our own bodies can even be enough to cover our sins because we aren't perfect and we are not a perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice, sacrifice that God demands. We are tainted by sin. See, the ancient idols and, and our current day idols, they don't care about that. They don't care if we're headed toward death. They don't care if we face that consequence. Our idols, in the end, they leave us hanging out to dry. They never, they never actually provide the deliverance we need. They only lead to death themselves. God knows that. God knows that worshiping idols, worshiping false gods, leads to death. This is what Scripture says in the New Testament. For the wages of sin is death. But God in the Bible... The God of Israel, Yahweh, is the only one who didn't leave us out to dry. He was willing to not just offer a solution, but to be the solution. He offers himself as the solution. Jesus, God in the flesh, stepped down from his throne in order to come to us and fulfill all obedience to this commandment for us. Before Jesus began his earthly ministry, he, he retreated into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. You'll see a parallel here. During this time, Satan comes to him to tempt him. In each temptation, Jesus withstands and obediently fulfills each commandment Satan throws his way in order to try to get him to break it. So Jesus overcame the temptations Israel failed to overcome. Jesus has also overcome the temptations we fail to overcome. Satan's final temptation to Jesus is documented in Matthew chapter 4. He says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So just a few weeks ago, in this very room, we all stood up 
as Dwayne led us to read out loud this passage from, um, from the book of Hebrews. And I, I want to read this because it connects to this passage that we just read about. Jesus says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This verse from Hebrews is reminding us of what happened in Matthew chapter 4. That Jesus overcame and obeyed this commandment for us. He was tempted to break it. He was without sin. Jesus was tempted with idolatry. And his obedience to this first commandment is now credited directly to us, even when we ourselves, we don't deserve it. So in other words, even though we blatantly disobey the first commandment because of Jesus, it is counted to us as though we actually were obedient to it. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew chapter 5, 17, he says that he came to fulfill the law. In another area, he says he came to fulfill all righteousness. Not only does his obedience to the law apply to those who put their faith in him, but also so does his death, the death that he died in our place. You see, Jesus bore the penalty of our disobedience to this commandment. This is not something any idol in all of history has ever been willing to do. No false god, no idol is known as humble and loving and willing to leave their throne to pay the penalty of death for their worshipers. That is counterintuitive. Idols dispose of us when they're done with us. Think about it. The time we sacrifice, the money we sacrifice, and for what? Those things don't serve us. We serve them. But we get a glimpse of the service the service of Jesus to us in order to save us. And I want us to take a look at that because I want us to see how counterintuitive the work of Jesus really is because incredibly we see that Jesus took on the role of a servant and he humbled himself in order to live the life that we can't live and then he died the death that we deserve to die. What idol has ever done that? What false god has ever done that? Hear the words from the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church in Philippi. He says, he says this about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Yahweh. That is the God of the Bible. The God who spoke to the nation of Israel, the God who speaks to us, the God who reminds us of his faithfulness to us. And then the God who commands 
that we obey. That is Jesus represented in this passage here. Let's pray together. We thank you, our God, for this commandment. Lord, would you teach us to see it as something that is good, something that is good for us and something that protects us from, from death? Show us who you are, your faithfulness, your goodness, your kindness, and let us be a people who remember that. Father, thank you for lavishing your kindness on us by showing that you want to protect us, your children, and give us good things from your hand. You gave us this commandment. Let us see that as good. Jesus, thank you for living the obedient life for us and dying the death that we deserve to die. Thank you for doing that in our place. Holy Spirit, this morning, would you stir us that we would worship God and God alone. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.